20 years ago this week, I met a beautiful brunette out in Fort Collins, Colorado. It would change my life and hers and go on to create a few and hopefully impact some more. And it was just a really great moment that summer. She was dazed and disoriented by the altitude and thought maybe I was somebody to connect with. I exploited that. A year later, asked her to marry me. And six months, five months after that, we were, we were married in January of that year. And Valentine's rolled around just a few short weeks. And I thought, man, I got to have my game on here. And I thought, what am I going to do for our first ever married Valentine's? And I, among the things that I did, I wrote her a card. And in the card, I wrote the following words. I want to stand with you on a mountain. I want to bathe with you in the sea. I want to lay like this forever until the sky falls down on me. And she was thankful. She was inspired. She was moved. And a short while later, she learned that I'd lifted those lyrics from a band called Savage Garden. She was angry, felt betrayed, began to question everything. And fellas, listen, newly married, here's what I did. I gave her space. And then I came to her several rooms across the house. And I said, Susan, I'm just trying to get down to the heart of the matter. But my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter. But it seems to me it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness, even if, even if you don't love me anymore. She said, that's Don Henley, but I forgive you. Hey, there's no doubt that songs move us, don't they? Songs inspire us. They impact our lives. It's why I know that you and I really enjoy the book of songs in the Bible. We've begun this series, just a five-week series, called Songs. And we're looking at this large book in the middle of our Bibles. Last week, we looked at Psalm 1, and in a word, we said happy. Because the chapter 1, and thus the entire book starts off with that word blessed, and that's what it it really means. It it means happy. And the psalmist gave us some stuff in there that that we looked at. We said that we're we're all on the I want to be blessed quest. And today we're going to look at Psalm 27. We're going to open that and and read that. We don't have it on the screen today, so I want to encourage you to snuggle up next to somebody that's got a Bible or find a complimentary Bible in your pew. And here's what I want us to do. Turn to page 460 if you're intimidated. Turn to page 460. That's where Psalm 27 is. Psalm 27. And we are going to look at this psalm, and we're going to use a word like we looked at Psalm 1 and we used the word happy. We're going to look at this psalm and use the word shelter. Psalm 27, and let's do this, church, if you're there. I'm going to put on the 1.5s, and would you stand? We're going to read this passage in its entirety together. Would you do that? Some of you are thinking, man, I just sat down. I don't like this church. It's like up and down. The Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tents. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. 
I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses rise up against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. God bless the reading of the word and its preaching and its receiving and its applying. In you we pray. In Jesus. Amen. Be seated. That was great. Can I be honest with you? I didn't realize you were going to read aloud with me. That's pretty cool. How many of you read aloud? Great. That's good. It's cool. Just wanted you to know. This, this morning, as we look at this passage, as we look at this one word, shelter, I want us to think about one question. I'd love for you to think about this one question that could potentially be so freeing in your life. And the question is this. What would your life look like if you had nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to fear? The psalmist is saying here, and by the way, with David, a leader, we learn a lot of his insecurities. How do we, how do we learn a lot about his insecurities? He, he just wears it on his sleeve. He tells you what he's going through. We know of his sin. We know of his leadership challenges, the fear and suspicious, the, the way he handled criticism, the way he handled disappointment and betrayal. And it was just, just a, a really good way, a really good example in so many ways to be a heartfelt follower. And I think David would say to us, that our God is a big God. In him, we can find shelter. Is your God big? When all of our kids were little, it was common. I know some of you parents are doing that these days, and you stole the idea from us. But when our kids were little, we would ask them when they were like sitting in their booster seat or their high chair, we would say, how big is? We would call their name, how big is? And they would raise their chubby little arms and just stretch out their hands as far as it could go. And they would say, this big, this big. Parents want their growing kids to realize that the thoughts they have about themselves are very important. And parents want their kids to not think that they're small, weak, or insignificant. Thus the question, how big are you? This big. The more important question this morning I ask you, how big is your God? What we just stood and read, and many of us read aloud along with me, we read about a God I think David is saying, who is amazingly capable, has just an utterly big love for you. He's an ever-present God, a fully capable God, an all-knowing God, and he wants to hide you in the shelter of his wings. Do you have a shrunken God this morning? No one would say aloud, honey, I've shrunken God. But we do that. We fashion and shape God in our very own little image. 
and a shrunken God, when we live with a shrunken God, it affects what about us? Everything. We pray without faith. We worship without awe. We serve without joy. We suffer without hope. We have a little God, a lowercase God, who can never overwhelm us and amaze us and transcend us. And in this psalm of shelter, it's actually a psalm of trust and confidence. And David, in this prayer, in this psalm that he puts, this song that he lays down for us, He's honest, right out of the gate. Topher led us a minute ago. I'm no longer a slave to my fear. But who can say that? You ever think about the words you sing sometimes in church? It's, this is the, probably the best place to be the easiest hypocrite around. I mean, right here. You don't have to leave here and be a hypocrite. Are you, are you a slave at all to your fear? What is it that you're afraid of? What I'm doing right now is psychologists say is people's biggest fear to stand up and speak in public. Second fear, death. That seems odd to me. What is your fear? How many of you are afraid of thunder and lightning? How many of you are afraid of storms? How many of you are afraid of snakes, of spiders? There's a lot of fears. How many of you are afraid of enclosed spaces? You're claustrophobic. If I put you in the trunk of a car, right, with live snapping turtles, you would freak out. Is that how many of you? Yeah. How many are afraid of heights? Check out this video real quick. This was in the room here last summer. This is me doing some work up here. <laughs> just doing some work, getting the lights ready. Topher told me to just have the worship center ready for us when we moved back in last summer. We paid a lot of money to renovate this place. If you were here in March and April and May of last year of 2014, you know the ceiling tiles and a lot of things needed work here. We, we installed this. I did a lot of the work myself. That's, uh, that's way up there, isn't it? You can look there and look there. That's just How many of you would want to be that guy? And in a second, you may see him descend down. But I, I would come in here, and it was like Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. The older I get, the more I am afraid of heights. I just get, I love to fly, but buildings and things like this, Laura McAlpin, we know you are. You're holding your husband's hand right now. Just thinking about it, we caught her last summer afraid to walk around on the, the trussles and stuff that we set up. But what are your fears? What are the things that you're afraid of? This guy, not of heights. Notice we cut the audio because he said a couple things. Construction workers last summer, they were saying things and whistling at me several times. But um, what are the things that, that, that you're afraid of? We all have fears, and if you're not afraid of something, and you find out someone's afraid of that particular thing, you, you call it a silly fear, don't you? You think it's just so irrational. And let me say this this morning. There's no paralyzing emotion greater than fear. And there's no command in Scripture more than fear not. And every time, let me, let, let's put this, um, let's drop that and just put up this uh, scientist at the Human Genome Project have isolated something, and they say that if you have a short version of this, this is the, I want you to use this later, okay? This is the SLC684 gene on the chromosome 17Q12. So when someone makes fun of you, now this, this was isolated. If you have a short version of this, then it means you're, that you're very prone to worry and fear. How many of you worry? How many of you seem like you worry more than the average person? 
Just tell people. Just say, hey, it's the SL684 gene on the chromosome 17Q12. Tell them to Google it and get off your back, right? There's a reason you're so messed up. I'm helping you out. I'm helping some of you folks out, okay? But is there something in us? I mean, fear is this dominant emotion. Let me go back and state what I said earlier. There's no human emotion more paralyzing than that of fear. How beautiful is God? There is no command in the Bible more common than fear not. Fear not, because I am with you. That's the most common command and the most common promise in all of Scripture. Isn't God good to address in His Word over and over our greatest need? The greatest psychologist is not in this room. He's our Father. He's our God. He's our Savior, our Creator. Interesting. Every time, and Jesus, you know this, many of you, He said often, fear not, fear not, fear not. And every time, I want you to hear this, every time He said it, you ready? Every time Jesus said, fear not, there was a reason to fear. Did you hear that? Every time he said, fear not, there was a reason to fear. The disciples in the boat, uh, Jesus, here's a storm. There's water, there's wind, there's waves. This is wild. Jesus was what? At the first part of that, he was, do you know it? He's asleep. You could say Jesus was busy, but you can never say Jesus was hurried or frantic. I want to say to you this morning, there's reason to be afraid. Let's not be the church. Let's not be the people. Let's not divorce ourselves from humanity and say that there is no reason to be afraid. We look at David in this psalm. He, just like Jesus and the disciples, they were not detached from reality. What's David telling you? We stood and we read it together. He said what? He said that there are evildoers, that I have enemies, that there are adversaries. I have foes. I have an army that's encircled. I have a war that's rising up. There are real enemies. And in the middle of that, he's speaking of God, an infinitely big God, as the one who shelters him. Fear not, fear not, fear not. What is it that we have to be afraid of? We live in a dark world. Our enemies probably don't have flaming spears and the things that David, that had encircled him. But we do live in a world of alienation and loneliness, of pride and prejudice, of strife, of conflict, of people going at each other of a creation that groans for redemption, of an enemy Satan who prowls like a lion. There's the, the evil that is in the world, the darkness of the world. But there is also the shadow side of ourselves. We see it in David. The, the Psalms, it's the heartbeat of the Psalms. God, you desire truth, he would say in Psalm 51, 7. You desire truth in the innermost parts. The darkness that David is talking about, he's actually, he actually talks about the light. Lord, I'm not going to fear why. Verse 1, I'm not going to fear why because you are the light. You are the salvation. You are the stronghold of my life. And David is saying for you and I that this thing, uh, this emotion of fear that can cripple us is driven out by God's light. So there's darkness in the world, but the easiest thing for us to do, especially as religious folk, if you claim that, or church-going people, I mean, you're here today, 
And the easiest thing for us to do is often refer to the darkness out there, but what about your shadow side? And what about mine? We were at a leadership thing a few years ago, and man, it impacted me. I, I sat and stood and walked around and interacted with many other pastors. And we listened to a speaker talk about an Old Testament story, not, not in the Psalms, but another Old Testament story. And he talked about our true mission. He said, every one of you men and women here, you have a true mission. What is your true mission? It's the highest calling and purpose of God in your life. But he said, you also have a shadow mission. What is that shadow mission? It's the authentic mission distorted just a little bit, imperceptibly, subtly over time. And that shadow mission gets you to begin to do things. It looks like your mission. It looks like you're living out your mission. But there's something darker alongside that. For many of us, the shadow mission is I do things to help people. And when I help people, I prove my worth. But what would your life look like? I'm asking you today. If you had nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to fear. And honestly, I'll tell you. I hide and I try to prove things to you because I'm afraid. And the psalmist is saying, man, let the light of God shine in your life. This conference speaker impacted me all these years later. He he went on to say that the, the shadow mission, if you're living out your shadow mission, it exhausts you. If you're living out your true mission, it energizes you. The, the shadow mission It flows from guilt and insecurity. The true mission flows from freedom and love and joy. The shadow mission really secretly, it all becomes about you. The true mission, it includes you, but it's about God. There's darkness in this world. And there's a shadow in us. And David is saying, the Lord is the light of my salvation. He wants us to walk in that light. In fact, when God created, our creator God, what were the first four words he said when he spun it all into being with those four simple words, let there be light. When Jesus came, he said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He said, hey, you, you followers of me, you be, you be the light of the world. Paul would say in Philippians 2, we live among a crooked and perverse generation. We ought to live our lives so joyfully following our Savior that we do it without complaining. And if we do that, if we live our lives with gratitude and not complain, we will what? Shine as lights in this generation. God so desires that the light of his life, of his love, would shine in us. Many years ago, when I was in college, which is painfully so many years ago. Can I just sit down for a second, please? I did another wedding last night just at, at, at a lake in Livingston. And just a beautiful, they're in our church, Gabe and Claire. They're so beautiful. It just made me sick about myself and getting older. Just stunning, stunning. But many years ago, when I was pretty much their age, I spent two consecutive summers in what's known as the former Yugoslavia. I was in a city called Belgrade. And I remember a night when something, it was early on, I think we'd only been there a few days, and the lights went out in the city. It was just, I mean, complete darkness. And we walked the streets and did the best we could. Nobody had cell phones then. I don't think they existed, actually. 
and we were walking, and we find one area lit up, just one area in all the city. It was a big hotel. And we walked in there. We, we, Americans, you know, we're fragile people as we travel, right? And we're used to all the amenities and comforts. We gripe so easily. We got those first world problems. And we saw this, this hotel, and we saw even some other Americans around. And we got into that hotel out of fear. I remember talking to somebody. I thought, what is it in, a, in the midst of all the darkness around us that's so pervasive? Why? Why this light? And you know the answer, gas generator. I talked to a gentleman there. What, what we have inside here, what is built in here is not affected by what's out there. What, what's in here is so strong. That it sparks, it's catalytic, it gives the light, irrespective of how dark it is out there. What is this metaphor of light? I've got a few lights shining on my bald head right now. I mean, is it a literal light? What's the metaphor here of Jesus being the light? It's very literal in Genesis Genesis 1 when when God said, let there be light. But it became more and more and more a metaphor. And you see it in this passage Look at verse 5. I think we have it up. Some of, most of you have it. He will hide me. Notice the words that are underlined. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. There's that shelter. The idea that God would be our covering. But here's our humanity. Look at what Peter would say. Live as free men, but not, do not use your freedom as a Cover up for sin. 1 Peter 2.16. He would go on to say in 1 Peter 4.8, look at the following. Above all else, love each other deeply. Because what does love do? It covers a multitude of sins. Love, listen to me church, this is just RG. Your pastor. Love cannot cover what sin covers up. Are you walking in the light? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, David did. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to do what, 1 John 1, 9? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what does 1 John 1, 8 say? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, God wants to be your cover. And he wants us, you and I, to not seek to cover up our lives and our dark sides, but to move over into the light. You see, what would your life look like if you had nothing to prove, nothing to hide, right? What, what would it, nothing to fear, what would, it, what would it look like? How many of your fears and my own or tied up into this covering that we seek for ourselves. David in this shelter psalm says, God is the one who is our tent. He is the one who is our shelter. I think there's a couple of messages for the church, for our church, that I want to give you this day. The first is, we need to, we need to turn toward Him. We need to turn toward Him. God is the light. In order for us to be the light, to be salt and light, we need to turn toward him and to help others turn toward God.
Secondly, we need to tell on ourselves. David, this warrior, this king, this poet, this lover, this one who wore his emotions on his sleeve. In Psalm 27, and talking about not fearing and finding shelter in God. Gives us a power of honesty and confession. For us, what? The church, you know what we do? We excel in artificiality. Nice people in neat rows, not being real. It's why we're saying to you that your health, the shelter that God invites you into, it ought to be lived out in circles. In circles where we can begin to talk about everybody. It doesn't mean you sign up for a small group this fall at the end of the summer and show up and tell everybody everything. It doesn't mean that. In fact, they'll ask you to not come back to small group if you do that. If you're in my group, I'll ask you to not come back to small group if you just vomit on us, right? But we need friends. Over time, progressively, we need friends where we can tell on ourselves and we can talk about the pain inside of us. We can talk about our anger. We can talk about what we have trouble overcoming. And then what do we do? Then, God help us, we'll be able to tell stories of what God is doing, how God is using friends and people in our lives to help us overcome. We need to turn to God. And we need to tell on ourselves. And for me, I look at this man named David who found so much, who learned as I'm learning and as you are, because we're all in this battle, aren't we? We all want to hide something. We all feel like we have to prove something. It's tragic. We're trying to prove something that can never be proven. We're trying to prove something that can never be done, that we don't have to do. We need to rest in his love. And for me, it's no game playing, no sidestepping, no deal making, no mask wearing. And when it comes to the friends that God puts in my life, it means no finger pointing or rock throwing. It means that the church ought to be, the message ought to be over and over again, even if you feel comfortable, we need to call people out of nice people in neat rows not being real. Who's tired of that? Is it working for anybody? The occasional church attendance? Maybe it helps, gives you goosebumps sometime. But what's it doing for you? We, we need to be together and we need to turn to God and help others turn to God. And those who've turned away from God, we are there. Because love covers a multitude of sins and we help them turn back to God. That's what the church ought to be doing. If we're going to be a shelter, we're going to find shelter, then we're called to help others find shelter as well. It's really healthy to tell on yourself. It's really not healthy to hold everything in. You're not going to find healing. You're not going to find growth. You're going to stagnate. And you're going to live a life where you're wondering what you're proving. You're worried about what you're hiding. And you are riddled with all kind of fears and insecurities. David gives us in this psalm, he gives three beautiful words in this psalm that I love. I'll read it again later. But he says the first word I love is gaze. Gaze. I gaze what? On the, the beauty. I behold the beauty of the Lord. 
I remember those 20 years ago this week when I first met her and how she gazed upon my beauty. <laughs> Honestly, when I first met her, I glanced, right? You know what I'm talking about? I glanced over there. I stole a glance. And then to quote some Frank Sinatra, I gave her that sly come hither stare. And it was all history, right? When you gaze on the beauty, you are doing that. You are beholding. It's not a glance. It's a gaze. Can I say you're not going to find God as your shelter? You're not going to be able to say what David said if you throw an occasional glance at God. I gaze. I behold the beauty of the Lord And he says, I dwell, I dwell in the temple. I gaze and I dwell. There's something kind of like last week. You remember in Psalm 1, we talked about the difference between a tree and tumbleweed. And it's this idea there's something fixed. Is there anything fixed about your spiritual life? Are you just constantly on the move? I gaze, not glance. I dwell, not move and shift on the beauty of the Lord. And he says, I wait. That's the last verse. I wait on the Lord. If you're going to know him as shelter, if God's going to work in you, you're going to need to learn to wait on him. Now, no preacher can build a big church preaching on waiting on God, right? How patient are you? Let's, let me give you a test. What would your response be? Let's say you're, at a toll, you're, you're, you're in a, one of those toll booths, and you're in a car, and the car, some of you are traveling this summer, you're, you're in a car, and the car in front of you is having a long conversation with the toll booth operator. What's your response there? Do you, A, are you happy because they're talking, and maybe they're, they're doing toll booth operation in community, right? Maybe they're starting a small group. Um, do you, B, think about telling them something, like inviting them to church or something? Or do you, C, Attempt to move your car in between the toll booth operator and the car, right? I mean, is that, what, what option do you take? If you're in the doctor's office and you've been there for over an hour, do you sit there and you're so glad that you get to catch up on the 1993 Reader's Digest version? Or do you be, think about telling everybody that you have a highly contagious, seriously fatal disease and you just clear out the waiting room? Or do, or do you see forced hyperventilation so people do clear out of the waiting room, right? What, what do you do when you have to wait? I'm telling on myself, when I drive home almost every day, I hit the garage thing. And I, I, it just reminds me how impatient I am. Now, it's cool that I want to get home and see my family, right? It's cool that I want to do that. But it just, it's like, it takes about 11 seconds. And it just, I mean, I'm just like, <sighs> And I'm, we got to call somebody. we got to call someone and come get us a new garage door, right? And I ought to be thankful that I can push a button. I mean, think about this. I can push a button and the garage opens. But I'm griping that it takes 11 to 15 seconds for it to open. And I hate to wait. Now, I've been silly a little bit talking about toll booths and doctor's offices and my garage at home. But if you're single and you feel like everybody's passing you by and life's passing you by, how are you doing on waiting on the Lord? And as you wait, because that's the thing, it doesn't mean just some passive sit on your hands and bemoan everything. There's a beauty in waiting. And if you wait right, there's a promise that those who wait on the Lord, what? They will, they will mount up with wings as eagles, Isaiah 40, 31 promises us. But to wait is hard 
when they're single. To, to wait is hard uh, at times. Anybody, no matter what age, when there's something that you want and you're not getting it. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And no doubt in a room of hundreds of people, there are some sick and broken hearts today. And it is hard to wait. But God wants to teach us, I think David knows this, to find God as our shelter. David wants to teach us that we must gaze, that we must dwell, and we must wait on him. And there is a promise, and the folks I've known who've lived longer than me, some godly people, would tell us today, like David would, I'm sure, that when you're waiting on God and it is hard, that you learn what he does in you while you wait is more important than what you're waiting on. What would your life look like if you had nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to fear? Pray with me.